fight people and tell them your case is in the courtroom. Get out of your seat, fight five people and say your case, your case, your case, your case, your case, your case. Come on, fight five people and say your case. Five people, five people, five people. Oh, I got five people in the back. You guys aren't moving enough. Come on, touch five people. Welcome to the Honest Youth Pastor YouTube channel, the channel that helps believers use biblical discernment in all aspects of life. Today, we are going to do that one of my favorite ways via a sermon review. And if you're new here, you don't know what that is. It is simply where we look through a sermon and ask three specific questions. One, do they read the text? Two, do they exegete that text using context and culture? And three, do they preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? So today, we're going to do a deep dive on a particular pastor. Let's get into it. Hey, what's going on, guys? It's Michael from the Honest Youth Pastor YouTube channel, the channel that helps believers use biblical discernment in all aspects of life. Today, we are going to do that by looking at an Andrew Pagani sermon, at least it's labeled that, Mastering the Art of Silence. It's a Sunday sermon. He's uploaded to his channel. It's 32 minutes long. So that being said, let's go ahead, start it, and uh, let's let's see what we get from the, the 32 minutes that are uh, that are left. Okay, so... Let me start off by saying this. Reaction is the new currency. So bankrupt them with your silence. Let me say that again. Reaction is the new currency. Why? Because we are living in this post-pandemic uh, society where everything is monetized. Everything is monetized. And as long as they could get a reaction, your reaction is paying their bills. So how do you bankrupt them from monetizing on your pain is you remain silent. You turn the other cheek. You miss what I just said. And you pray for your enemies. Funny enough. So he seems to be talking about reaction content. Like, um, I mean, kind of what we're doing here. This isn't really reaction com con content. It's more commentary. Um, and it's really a subgenre niche of commentary, right? I mean, we're specifically looking at what the pastors are saying, regardless of who they are, and then comparing it to scripture as the Bereans did, and then seeing, are they exegeting the scripture, right? Now, to be entirely open, like transparent to you guys, these are monetized. They take time, they take effort to edit, to do all this, to set aside time to do it. So I do monetize them. Um, but I don't know if I'm monetizing them to make money off of his pain as much as I'm monetizing them. Uh, so this is a constant thing that we can keep doing. Uh, so there's that. Now, he does seem to be pointing at a very specific sort of uh, genre of reaction content. Like you clip a clip out of context, perhaps, and then you react to it and you demonize somebody. That's, that, is thing, that is a thing that some people do. Uh, and some people do monetize that. And so he seems to be ironically, reacting to those that react to him and using them as an example at the very first minute of this sermon, or at least the first minute we get, and saying, like, I'm going to stay silent, and so should you if people 
react to the things you do and are benefiting from your pain. And then he uses the verse about, you know, praying for your enemies. So he assumes, it seems, that those that are reacting to maybe some of his content are doing so uh, because they're his enemies and they just want to make money off of them. That seems to be sort of how he's setting up the beginning of this. Enough. And it's kind of ironic that I already had this message already prepared a month ago for today. And just how ironic that there's been a lot of stuff going on. And I said, Lord, you, you have a sense of humor because, because I guess you knew that certain things would pop off. So the title of my message that God gave me a month ago for today is Mastering the Art of Silence. <laughs> Mastering the Art of Silence. I want to talk about silence. Okay, so just for the audio listeners, because I know there's, there's a good number of you, um, there are going to be cuts, obviously, that are his edits um, that he has made before he uploaded. So post recording this, he's edited some of these things together. I'm going to try to be diligent as possible to point those out while also trying to be like really intent on listening to what he's saying. Uh, but that was the first one. There was a first cut. So there's going to be times where it seems like probably on the audio side that things are like that are, they're just flowing together. Uh, he's made those cuts, not me. I want to be very clear about this. This is the thing that he has edited and put up and that he wants it to sort of be out. In fact, I'll be honest with you. I'm, I'm thinking this now on the, just of what I've said, we're not going to tell you when they edit it because that is going to be really distracting for me. I'm just not going to be able to do that. But what I am going to do is sort of take a tally as they happen. Um, because he's clearly wanting the, this audio to run together as a thought, even though he is being diligent about letting us know he's cutting it, but he's obviously cutting it for a purpose, like as far as the, the points he's trying to make. So I'm just going to take a tally of all the times that it does cut. I'll tell you that at the end. So that way we can all listen to the audio because that's clearly kind of what he wants us to hear because he's edited it together. And then we'll kind of assess what he said. And then we'll talk about how many times it cuts at the end. I think that will be the easier thing. Uh, easier thing to do here. Silence today. Now, I'm not talking about denial, but I am talking about silence or being silent. How many of you can be honest by a show of hands? You have a problem with being silent. How many of you can also say your mind has a problem with remaining in silence? Yes. Yes. Everybody's hand went up there. Yes. Those of you watching online, put a little hand emoji. <laughs> right? And I'm going to tell you why. Because we are a city that never sleeps. We're always in motion. So there's never a moment when we have Sabbath, which is, so I'm beginning to understand now in my latter years, and how many of you that are older can understand what I'm about to say? That silence is golden. Have you ever just been in a place where I just don't want no noise? Have you ever just want silence? Just, and that's because we've lived from the cradle to the grave. We have been a people of motion and movement and noise. We've been a people of noise. I remember when I first moved out of New York City to the suburbs where I live now. It was quiet. 
I also want to point out, uh, I know, again, for audio listeners, and maybe some of you guys who are watching haven't noticed, but there is already scripture on the screen. Um, it looks to be maybe something from Re- Revelation, just from kind of the glimpses I've got from it. I That's why I don't like edited videos, because um, somebody could easily say, well, you, you know, you didn't see the whole thing. <laughs> but this is what he uploaded. So that's why I'm so comfortable doing it. I'm just wondering if he hasn't read scripture before whatever he's saying here. And when you're not used to quiet, quiet is scary. Any little noise, I was like, huh, did you hear that? Did you hear that? Huh, what's this? And in my mind, noise means robbery. So I was up all day looking around. It was animals, it was creatures of the forest. See how that works? So watch this, watch this. Because noise means safety. Silence for us is scary. Especially when God is silent. And not talking. I'm here to tell you, God doesn't have to talk to you because you're crying. He already gave us his word. Should he talk to you through Rama? That's an added blessing through intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit. So silence becomes uh, an enemy to us. Not realizing this is why now in my latter years, I'm beginning to understand the concept and the fourth commandment of Sabbath. Where God says, keep the Sabbath day what? holy and he sanctified it which means I don't want no noise on this day because it's not for me it's for you it's for you because the Bible says the Sabbath was made for man when we are not a people of silence we are a people that's always triggered we're always triggered we're always triggered right and silence means I'm diffusing triggers because I'm not feeding into it, therefore I'm not putting myself in that environment to even get triggered. When the lamb broke the seventh seal on the scroll, there was what? There was silence throughout heaven for about half an hour. Okay, so he is in Revelation. Um, he did not tell us where because we basically, I mean, up to this point, we have literally had 11 cuts. We are five minutes in and we have had 11 cuts. Uh, let me see. Okay, here we go. Let me see if I can find the passage. Revelation 8 is where apparently he is at, unless he tells us any different. That seems to be what is going on. So let me get to Revelation chapter eight and see if this lines up with what is he's saying which makes sense because if you see the screen there is a it looks like a a chapter or a verse two so let's see what we got here revelation right uh yeah eight two then i saw yeah okay so this is where we're at let's go ahead over to uh our bible screen here this seems to be where we're at so this is the seventh seal. Now, again, you have to understand, apply some hermeneutics here. Uh, Revelation is a, an apocalyptic 
literature. That's the that's the category it fits in. And so what we have is not only end times, right? This is the, the end of days where this, this fits in, but it's also very uh, visions, uh, judgment. Um, it fits into sort of prophetic literatures too. That's just the kind of the categories it would fit in. So when we're reading this, we have to understand that as well. That's in key to, to reading Revelation. Now, if you don't, understand that you're going to read it like a narrative or something along those lines. And that's just not going to be helpful overall to reading it. Now, this is where he's at though. So let's see when the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half hour. Now this seems to be at least right now where he's at. And he's really gone in on this whole silence is what do you say scary silence is scary now he's used some relatable stories from his life to sort of communicate that in a way that says you know he's used to noise when there is no noise it's scary to him because noise is safety and when he moved out to the suburbs silence is scary because he assumed if there was noise something bad was happening he's then edited the video cut it to where silence is scary God not speaking to us is scary because we're expecting him to do that. And then for whatever reason, we've now landed in Revelation chapter 8, verse 1, where it says there was silence in heaven for about a half hour. Let's see with with scripture in mind and where we're at, where he kind of goes with this. Because at least now we have some sort of foundation. We have some footing. What scripture is he using? Well, we know that now. So let's see if the things that he sort of builds off of that are coherent with what the text uh, is saying. And if we need to, we'll, we'll get into it a little bit more. Now go to the next slide, watch this. So, so even heaven cherishes and has moments of silence. We're always thinking heaven is always moving. When the lamb broke the seventh seal, the Bible says heaven took a moment of silence, and that's what I want to talk about today, the benefits of mastering the art of silence. Let me give you an example of how much we struggle as silence, because the Pentecostal movement is built on noise. So if somebody stays silent for a second, somebody goes, praise the Lord! We kind of like throw it out there. And sometimes God wants to move in silence. Why? Because when the prophet Elijah was in the cave, the Bible says an earthquake came and God was not in the earthquake. The Bible says a windstorm came and God was not in the windstorm. And then afterwards, the Bible says a still, small voice, which means when the prophet quieted himself, then he can hear God clearly. Look at this. So those who are what? Smart, keep their mouths shut. Why? Not because you ain't keeping it real, but because of the time that you're living in. See, get out of your mind. I'm just gonna keep it real. Look at your neighbor and say, it's not about you. Okay, this is a terrible way to cut a sermon. I'm just, I don't know who edited this. Um, because we don't know where he's even at right now. I'm trying to find it. Uh, verse. Let's see if there's any verses that come up because this doesn't sound familiar. Okay, so this is going to be Proverbs 21, 23. So let's look up Proverbs. <laughs> I mean, we were all over the place. Proverbs 21, 23 says this. Whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. 
All right, so that is a proverb in and of itself, right? I mean, there's a lot of proverbs before and after that, but the idea is that if you keep your mouth and tongue, uh, you keep yourself out of trouble. That's a very relatable proverb, right? If you don't run your mouth, um, you're not going to get in trouble. <laughs> I mean, that's the modern day equivalent of it. I'm not sure how that ties into this other than just being silent. Um, I think we can learn to like, let me just stop. Uh, what are we 15 minutes in 16 minutes into this and just say this, like editing is incredibly important. Um, especially if you're editing something such as a sermon and it is like, obviously a sermon is a, an hour or less coherent sort of thought process. And so when you start cutting that up, you can get real messy because a coherent sermon at least is built off the point before it. And eventually you're supposed to come full circle. Um, and whatever you cut it up, like we're, you're, we're, we're just unavoidably going to miss parts. We've cut 12 times, 11 of those were within the first five minutes. And so it's really hard to follow along, especially online. Right. And he clearly has an online, you know, following to what you're saying now, thus far, I think I can clearly say 15, 20 minutes into the sermon review that his use of revelation is, is, is a little sketch at best because he's saying that even heaven is silent. Well, heaven is specifically silent here in revelation eight because the lamb opens the seventh seal. That seems to be, that's the cause that that's the cause of the silence in heaven is the lamb opens the seventh seal. And then John says, I saw a seven angels who stand before God and the seven trumpets that were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar of the golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with prayers of all the saints of the gold, uh, on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke and the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angels. Then the angels took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there was pearls of thunder, rumblings, flashing lightning and earthquakes. Obviously, again, you're reading this as an apocalyptic literature. There is going to be uh, symbolism involved in that. That's all there is to it. And obviously there's going to be some usually end times judgment wording there. We see that clearly there as well. Um, but it doesn't fit. The silence here is used simply because there's silence, not because that's what the text says or something that the text is even prescribing for Christians to uh, listen to. And there's not a whole lot we can even descriptively learn from this because it has a cause and effect feature. So John is simply telling us what is happening, what he's seeing occur. Um, so at best, at best here, the silence is out of reverence or awe, seeming, it seems to be, right? Now he does move on uh, to a passage that he talked about in Kings in which uh, there, there's this part where uh, he hides himself, I think, in a cave and God, uh, there's a bunch of stuff that happens and God wasn't in any of those things, but God was in the silent or in the whisper or something like that. I think uh, it says it's first Kings chapter 19 verses 11 13. Again, that wasn't the prophet silencing himself. It was God being in the, th in the silence, not in the loud noises. And so it's not even the prophet silencing himself. So, so far the idea is that we should be okay with silence but in both of the examples, it doesn't make sense why it doesn't even make sense why we're talking about silence, because we've started the sermon on the premise that you silence your reactionary critics with your silence and not reacting back to them. And in order to, to justify that, we've ripped 
so far two verses out of context. And honestly, the third one that he's using in Proverbs here, uh, Proverbs chapter uh, 21, verse uh, 23, really could apply to himself, right? I mean, whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. Just watch what you say and how you say it, and you won't be in trouble, um, is the general principle. So I'm, I'm, I'm lost up to this point. Let's keep going. It's about the days that we are living in. See? So watch this. I know that this is written here for the day that we're living in now. Why? Because any reaction is caught on this. And then used against you. See how that works? So God is saying, if you are smart and understand the times and the season that you're living in, you'll know that there's a time to not be Bronx. And just be quiet and say, and do what? And walk away. Write this down. Silence is a godly attribute. It's a godly attribute. Why? Go to the next slide. Look at this. Because sometimes even God is silent. Okay, so he is in uh, Hezekiah, maybe? Hezekiah in order to something, something in his heart. I don't, I don't know. He's not, um, I, I don't have a feeling, like, here's the thing, even though he's, he's clearly cut again to this slide, so there's been some he said before this, is that in, in this, what we can see, what we've already seen, and what's, a, what's happening here, essentially, even if he's in, he, I think he's in Hezekiah, Hezekiah, um, let me just look it up with this, I mean, this is what we're doing, this is how, this is what you're forced to do now, um, whenever somebody cuts a video like this. Uh, let's see, has, <laughs> this is just kind of crazy to me. I'm sorry for the, uh, the silence here. I'm just, I'm just trying to figure out where he's at because he's not telling us. <sighs> Maybe second Kings chapter 20 is perhaps where he's at. His whole point is that God is also silent. Um, sometimes God is silent. Now, again, when we're approaching a text, there's a few things that we have to do. The very basic ones are use exegesis. So understanding culture, context, all that that's going on in the text. And then we're applying hermeneutics at the same time, the lenses by which we should be reading this text. So has a, a second, uh, assuming it's 2 Kings, we're looking at a na- narrative uh, historic situation. That's what we're doing. And so now... He's trying to say that God is silent. God is also silent sometimes. Now, if we're looking at it within 2 Kings, for example, there's probably a reason, I'd say, um, that God is silent, right? It's probably because maybe the people have done something wrong. The people have not obeyed him. Um, They're worshiping it in ways they shouldn't. I mean, this is just basic Old Testament stuff. Uh, Let's see where he goes with it, though. What what is he going to say about God being silent, too? And if God is not always talking, you missed what I just said, then we should be a people that talk less frequently. So we find that God at times moves 
in silence and he withdraws himself. Look at the text. However, when the ambassadors, we're talking about King Hezekiah, watch this. However, when the ambassadors arrived from Babylon to ask about the remarkable events that had taken place in the land, what happened? What did God do at the moment that these ambassadors came? God withdrew himself for a reason. In order to do what? To test him. So God withdrew himself in order to test who? To test Hezekiah to see what was really in his heart. Now, now let me explain what's really going on here. Say it with me. God is sovereign. He already knows what's in your heart. You don't know what's in your heart. So when God... Okay, so he's not in 2 Kings. He is apparently in 2 Chronicles 32-31. Okay, that's apparently where he's at. So, his premise is God is sovereign. Hey, there we go. We found a point of agreement with uh, Pagani. Great. We found a point of agreement with Pagani. God is sovereign. He already knows what's in your heart. Let's see what he's going to do. I'm going to pull up here in a minute. I'm going to pull up... Um, the, the text he's at, and we'll kind of go through it. Draws himself, and you start talking, is to show you, you. Yeah. Yes. So that you could see yourself and say, man, I, I, I got issues. I need deliverance. I, I need to get into the word. I need to crucify this flesh. See? But not only this, God the Son also at times knows when to keep silent. And this matters to me more because this is Christ who we're emulating through the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so we are, um, we're just skipping around at this point. Uh, I'm going to try to keep track of not only the cuts he makes, but the scriptures he at least switches to. What we're essentially doing here, it seems like now, is that we are going through giving different text on when people were silent. So we've covered... Uh, what have we covered? Revelation, uh, when heaven goes silent. We've covered First Kings, when uh, the prophet goes silent. Well, God speaks in the silence. Uh, we've covered Proverbs 21-23, when uh, it said that it is wise to watch your words. We've talked about Second Chronicles chapter 32-31, in which God withdraws himself and is silent to uh, apparently um, for God to test his heart. Let's go to that real quick. I'm already here. Why not? Let's do some Bible. So 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verse 31, we'll start at verse 30. This same time, Hezekiah closed the upper outlet of the waters of Gihon and directed them down the west side of the city of David. And Hezekiah um, prospered in all his works. Now, okay, this is why we're in 31. And so in the manner of the envoys of the princes of Babylon, who had been sent to him to inquire about the signs that had been done in the land, God left him to himself in order to test him and to know what was in his heart. Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his good deeds, behold, they were written in the vision of Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And Hezekiah slept with his father. So this right here isn't just a temporary silence, right? This seems to be, I mean, the way that the, the one that writes Chronicles writes is that God left him, right, at what moment? Well, when the Babylonian envoys came um, in order, he left him in order to test him and to know what was in his heart. That's all we get. That's sort of the end because uh, if you want to know more, they say, 
go check out um, go check out Kings. Basically, that's going to let you know the rest of the story. Um, but that's how Second Chronicles ends. So God leaves him. It's not that even God is it was silent. It's, it's God left him to himself, right? So you are on your own in order to test him uh, in all his heart. So this silence aspect. Again, it's got a deeper meaning. We have we have a historical narrative here telling specific things about how God interacts with his people and what his people are doing. That's that's the whole point of at least seems to be this text. Uh, and it seems also to be why it ends this way. Again, with all the things we look at here exegetically, we could probably go a lot deeper if we spent the time on it. Just looking at it, uh, Chronicles Second Chronicles here seems to end with the big point being and God left him to himself in order to test uh, in order to test him and know what was in his heart. Because the next thing we know is if you want to know more about that, there's more written in the Kings. Uh, but you're not gonna, we're not gonna talk about it here because that seems to be the period on the sentence. God left him. And so it's not even silence. It's, it's not even silence. It's just God left him to know his heart. So now we are apparently in another passage somewhere in the gospel where Jesus is going to be silent. So basically what we're doing here uh, is we are uh, just basically a topical sermon on silence. And the issue with topical sermons in which you do it on a word, such as silence, is that now uh, you are really, really apt to take things out of context and then shove them into whatever, like the preconceived notion of what you want to do. Uh, because you can, because now you're not looking at the context or culture of the verses. You're not looking at the point or narrative in which they're written in. You're just like taking them out because you can, because there's a word there that you need and by goodness, you're going to get it. But when the leading priests and the elders, but when the leading priests and the elders made their accusations against him, Jesus remained silent see how it is and look what they said don't you hear all these charges they are making against you on social media and what did Jesus say look at your neighbor this time don't say nothing just go just, just silent see so we find God the Father being silent God the Son also knowing to be silent why because silence, write this down, is a display of meekness. And meekness, write this down, is not weakness. Okay, so the text that he is uh, referring to is going to be Jesus before the council. It is going to be um, in Mark chapter 14. I mean, he's not going to get into this. So I just, I just want to demonstrate my point here. Is that his point is that silence isn't weakness, it's meekness which isn't necessarily incorrect, but he's using Mark uh, chapter 14. So let's go to Mark chapter 14. And we're going to start at Jesus before the council, which is going to be in uh, verse 53. So let's get to verse 53. Then we'll switch the screen real quick. So here we go. This is where we're at. Jesus before the council. Now, uh, we'll just start at verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance uh, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming his fire. Uh, now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Right? So they're like, hey, 
witness against this guy, but nobody got the story straight. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple uh, that is made by hands, and in three days I will build another not made by hands. Yet even about their testimonies, they did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst of in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What uh, is it that these men testify against you? But this is verse 61 that he's, he's pulling out, but he remained silent and made no answer. Now Pagani here is making the case that uh, making a correlation between this is honestly, it seems very much like a sermon, a self-serving, a self-serving sermon. A majority of the people in his congregation very likely do not have anyone making um, accusations against them online, right? I mean, if they do, it's probably like a coworker or like a family member or like it's it's a hundred percent less than a handful of people that m- most people would ever get called out on social media for. In reality, it very much seems, based on the very beginning of the sermon, is that he's defending himself because everybody's saying mean things about him, and uh, he's going to stay silent instead of react. And his reasoning is that, well, God stayed silent, Jesus stayed silent, and then he makes a direct correlation that Jesus stayed silent in the midst of his accusers, and so should you. So, And he, he parallels the high priest, stood up in the midst of them and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? And he says, do you not have anything to say about the people saying things about you on social media? Um, which is not in case, uh, in case this is a mystery to you is not the same thing. (laughs) Okay. Within the context, as we've already seen the people that are making testimony against Jesus, what does it say? Well, their testimonies, uh, don't line up. It says that twice, but just one of them, uh, in verse 59 is that their testimonies did not agree. We've seen that a thousand times or a couple times in this text is that, you know, they, they had a bunch of people testifying against Jesus. None of them stuck because none of them lined up, right? And so Jesus doesn't answer. He remains silent. Again, the high priest said to him, are you the Christ, the son of uh, the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. Now, listen, this is important. We're probably not going to, Pagani's probably not going to get to this point, is that when Jesus is falsely testified against, he doesn't say anything because there's nothing to say. They're not giving correct testimony. They're not giving an adequate uh, accusation because they're wrong. They're not actually saying, you know, saying the things that he said, or at least in the context, in the temple context of what he actually was getting at. However, when the high priest asked a very direct question, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Uh, He says, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven, right? So when there is a legit question asked, Jesus is more than happy to respond. He's just simply not responding to the testimony that doesn't line up and is clearly false. And so I know I stopped him. He hasn't got that far. I highly doubt he'll actually cover that. Again, this seems like a self-serving sermon. People make reaction videos about you and you're upset. So now you're saying, you know, you've learned to remain in the silence right? Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't know who this sermon is, would be even helping really. Let's, let's just keep going though. See, silence is a display of meekness. 
not weakness. Why? What is meekness? Meekness is, write this down, regulated power, which means I could destroy you, I'm choosing not to. That's what meekness is. Meekness doesn't mean you don't have the ability to do it. It means I have the ability to do it and I'm choosing not to. Okay, but right before this, he made a correlation between himself being falsely accused and Jesus being falsely accused. And it says, but meekness is the ability to destroy you, but I don't do it. So is he saying that he could destroy the people that are making reaction videos to him, but he chooses not to, therefore he's meek. Therefore I'm making and I'm walking by the fruits of the spirit called what? Meekness. What? Watch this. Go to the next slide. Look at this. And what does the Bible say about meekness? Meekness brings a reward with it. It brings an inheritance. Look what it says. Blessed are the what? Are the meek, for they shall do what? They shall inherit the earth. Now, 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 there's something else going on here because as a Christian, we're not coming, we're going up there. So why would we inherit something? You missed what I just said. So what does this actually mean? It means when you choose to walk in meekness, your influence grows on the earth. And God allows you to get in various platforms and spheres of influence because he could trust. Okay, just, oh my goodness. All right, we're going to go to Matthew. Here's the thing. This is, nothing frustrates me more um, than when you take scripture and then you just make it say whatever you want it to say. It's just, all right, so here we go. We're just, we're going to learn a whole bunch today about exegetical work and hermeneutics. That's, that's apparently what we're doing. So here we are, Matthew chapter five, verse five. This is where we're talking about meekness, right? So this is the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew writes this, seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain and uh, when he sat down, the disciples came with him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, now this is the very beginning of the teaching that goes all the way through chapter six into chapter seven. And all of the Sermon on the Mount is basically about the kingdom of heaven, what the kingdom of heaven uh, is like, what the people of the kingdom are like. And it, it could be classified within uh, the moralistic teaching, right? So it's obviously a narrative that Matthew is writing, but within the narrative, the teachings of Jesus are moralistic teachings. The point is that they're supposed to be uh, adapted. Jesus is saying, this is what the people of the kingdom of heaven are like. And if you are going to be a person that is in the kingdom, these are the attributes you'll have. These are the things you'll do, right? And so he begins this with the blessed are, blessed are statements. So we start with, and blessed are the poor of spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, from the, from the jump, we're going into the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, shall they, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see. Now, Pagani just said uh, something along the lines of, um, actually, I'll tell you what, we're going to rewind it just a bit. I hate doing this because there's a potential. There's a potential of messing it up, but we're going to give this a shot real quick because I don't want to misquote him. So we're at 1139. Let's back it up to 1130. I think that's, that's plenty of room. Um, and let's see what he says real quick. Influence grows on the earth. Okay, hold on. I need to be back a little bit further. I'm sorry. Um, 11.30. Let's go to 11.15. All right, let's just be safe and just go to 11. How about that, guys? All right. 
Let's see what he says here. Meekness brings a reward with it. It brings an inheritance. Okay. Look what it says. Blessed are the what? The are the meek, for they shall do what? They shall inherit the earth. Now. I'm um, sorry. Um, so the meek will inherit the earth. So obviously we have to skip ahead uh, to some of, uh, I think it's uh, Peter that writes about the new heaven and a new earth. I think it's also in Revelation. The point is that the earth is, is still an important part in the new creation uh, after the return of Christ. And so even at this point in first century, there's this idea of a final judgment, but the earth isn't like nothing anymore. It's not destroyed. There's not like you go up to heaven and live as an angel. Like that's not a con. That's not the concept. The point is there is an after. So now there's, it's not real clear what that looks like, but there's this idea of an after and a final judgment eventually coming. Uh, this is why in the old Testament you have like talk of Sheol, right? Even in the examples that Jesus is, Jesus uses, uh, the rich man and, and, and Lazarus, you still, you get a little bit of a glimpse inside of afterlife thinking of the first century Jews. Um, all of that being said is that it's not just this idea of you go up to heaven and you live on the cloud somewhere, but this seems to be the concept. There is an inheritance, right? I think Paul actually says you are going to judge, um, the angels. I forget the rest of the verse. Oh man. The point is there is a concept of the earth still being around. That's my entire point. So let's listen to him now. Now, now there's something else going on here because as a Christian, we're not coming, we're going up there. So why would we inherit something? You missed what I just said. So what does this actually mean? It means when you choose to walk in meekness, your influence grows on the earth. Okay. When you choose to walk in meekness, your influence grows on the earth. That's what he said. Now, now we're back in the passage. So blessed are the meek. Okay. For what? For they shall inherit the earth. Now, when you're reading the text, it's very important, as always, we talk about this all the time, to know the verses that are around the text that you're reading, okay? Now, we have a bunch of blessed are statements, and we can kind of get an idea of how we are to read those blessed are statements based upon the other ones around it. So, blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, why are they blessed? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so the poor in spirit are blessed because they are going to inherit the kingdom of heaven, which is a huge thing. So even though you're, you're poor in spirit now, you're getting the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Okay, well, how are those that are mourn blessed? Well, they'll be comforted. So we're looking at you're poor, you're getting the kingdom. You mourn, you get comforted. Okay, the next one. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Okay, so you're meek, you're lowly, but you will get the whole world. Okay. Blessed are those who are hungry and they thirst. Why? So you shall be satisfied. So these are, these seems to be juxtapositions that Jesus is setting up, right? If you are merciful, you receive mercy. If you're pure of heart, you will see God. If you are a peacemaker, you shall be called sons of God, right? The idea seems to be that it's sort of the juxtaposition. So though you don't have that now, you will have that later. So when you are meek, you inherit the earth. So you you don't pursue power and you will be given that later seems to be the thing. But this is a later thing. All of these things are later things, right? 
If you if you bless, if you're merciful, you will eventually receive mercy. If you're pure of heart, you will eventually see God. If you're a peacemaker, you will be called the sons of God. Um, so this idea of your influence increases on the earth is a bit of a reading into it, especially given the concept that he sort of laid out is that it is a, it's an already thing. He said, like, why would you inherit the earth if you're going to live in heaven? This is already a, a very interesting insight to his sort of theology of the afterlife um, or after the final judgment even. So for him, that is a now thing, which is really interesting because that's not how it's sort of set up, even on the rest of them, right? Let's just finish this and we'll hop back in. Blessed are those who are persecuted, but not just persecuted, but persecuted for righteousness sake, for those will also be the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those uh, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So they're doing all of those things because of, of Jesus, because you're speaking, uh, you're speaking of Jesus, uh, for they also pre- persecuted the prophets before you. So this one actually seems to be uh, one of the only ones that's right now. Anyway, it's, it's super interesting that he assumes that influence uh, is connected to meekness based on the verse. So I just want, before we hop in, I know I've interrupted a, a lot on this one. But he's taken the silence of Jesus before the council as meekness. And then he's taken that meekness and then said, with meekness comes influence. But the fact that he ripped Jesus' meekness before the council out of context, wouldn't Jesus' meekness then equal influence then? Like it just doesn't, like it doesn't track. And God allows you to get in various platforms and spheres of influence because he could trust you with power. The last thing he wants to do is give a bazooka to a five-year-old. You missed what I just said. The last thing God wants to do is to give a Bugatti to a two-year-old. You missed why? Why? You got the power. You're too immature to drive. See how that works? So if you still got clap back in your system, you're not ready for ministry. Silence doesn't mean to overlook. It means to overthink, to think things through, meditate and reflect. It doesn't mean to overlook, it means to overthink, which means I'm gonna stay quiet and I'm gonna ponder on what's going on and I'm gonna allow God to give me wisdom on what's going on and how to proceed and where I need to fix and what I need to defend myself and what I don't need to defend myself and what, why? Because, go to the next slide, what's this? What does silence display? Write this down, number one, Proverbs 16. It displays that you have self-control. You have self-control. If you gotta have the last word, you ain't got no self-control. You ain't got no self-control. See? I heard many people go, (laughs) how many of you are like, well that counts me out. (laughs) That's why we're here. Okay, so silence, learning to be silent. Now, I'm not talking about being abused and not sticking up for yourself. That's, that's a separate topic. You guys know what I'm talking about. But number one, silence displays that you have in Spanish, lo que se dice, dominio propio. I like the way the Spanish version says it because the word dominion is in there. Dominio propio means self-dominion. 
which means I have dominion over me. Now, why is that important? Because I'm not going to let the next person steal my peace. I'm not going to let the next person make me get in the flesh. I'm not going to let the next person make me get and say and do something that God ends up yelling at me. And God says, control yourself. Why? Why? Because it is a better way. The next thing silence displays, let's go to the next slide, is it displays wisdom. What does the text here says? Even fools are what? Thought what? Wise when they do what? With their mouths shut, they seem what? Oh, so watch this. So silence causes your wisdom and intelligence level to increase. See, when you're silent, people will see the wisdom. That's how dangerous it is because the Bible says even a fool, if they're silent, can do what? Appear wise. So this lets us know that silence has an attribute of shifting perspectives. See, even fools. How many of you ever met a fool? Met a fool, right? What are fools? Fools are loud. See, but I've learned something. I've learned something about people in 2023. Can I be honest with you? Yeah. A lot of the church really is righteous and ratchet at the same time. Now, what do I mean by that is this, this true story. <laughs> and only if you from the hood, you could tell. How many of you from the hood can tell when somebody else is from the hood? You ever call these companies and the receptionist picks up the phone and you can tell they ratchet. And they have the, hi, welcome to, and they're talking in a different voice, but you can hear. You can hear ghetto in there. Right? God forbid you ask another question. Like, yeah, so let me ask you this question. So if I do this, you ever hear it? Now, <laughs> now why am I pressing this because there are benefits there are benefits am I talking good there are benefits to becoming silent right and it's this the benefit of learning to be silent is you stop ruining things and ruining your blessings how many of you know, how many of you ever said something that you later regretted? Like, man, I shouldn't have said it, right? Have you ever said something and offended someone so bad that they just like, you know what, I, I don't want to deal with you no more, I'm done? And no matter how much you say sorry, they're done, and then you catch yourself like, man, I really, I really ruined that. Let me see your hands. I've been there. I've been there. Look at all these hands up. You guys need deliverance, man, seriously. Some of you are doing it now, <laughs> right? Now, watch this, watch this. The reason why, especially in this evil time, is because one wrong remark in failing to keep your silence can ruin your testimony, can ruin your ministry, can ruin your marriage, can ruin your relationships, can ruin, it could lead to something that could lead to something and then you gotta get in another dimension and next thing you know, both of you are in a paddy wagon getting sent to the precinct, you missed what I just said and you're like, how did I get here? It was because you didn't control that mouth of yours. 
Now that right there is about the first super helpful thing we've actually said that's applicable, right? That's, that's applicable to everybody that's listening. And so we could have pretty much just stuck with what? Proverbs, where was it before? Proverbs 21, 23 and kind of done. Like It wouldn't have been a super long message, but like just spoken about that. The other ones that we've taken and used, which we have used a lot of scripture, but the ones that we've used have, for the most part, missed sort of the context of what's going on. Like when we talk about in in First Kings or in Second Chronicles about God being silent, like there's a reason God's silent there, right? When we talk about, uh, actually the Kings one was the prophet, but again, that was still not explored. Uh, Revelation chapter eight, again, the silence there, that was purposeful, uh, contextually it was important. So all the ones we've talked about, except maybe the Proverbs ones about watching your mouth, uh, the Proverbs 17, 28, one about, you know, even the fool seems smart when he's keeps his mouth shut. Like those are helpful. We could maybe do a sermon on, um, on Proverbs, right? You could even use a number of different Proverbs because Proverbs, again, there's Proverbs is broken up in a way that's, uh, is almost beneficial to be preached through topically almost because Proverbs are, for the most part, verse just like sayings. That's all they are. They're just single sayings and then that are helpful and uh, can be applied, right? I mean, there's no guarantee in them, but it's, it's uh, ways to live right. And so you could have used a lot of those to communicate the same thing that we've already communicated in a more general way that doesn't come off as Pagani defending himself against all of his critics and then ripping context out of the verses he's using to do so. Rather, we could have just really dug into that our mouth, we could have even used the verse, um, oh, I don't know, uh, uh, where's it at? It's the uh, verse about the tongue, the power of the tongue, but we could have even started with that and then transitioned into some Proverbs about keeping silent, when to speak, when not to speak, and made that applicable for the day in social media when everybody wants to have something to say, and then kind of transition that into, you you do need to say things, but you need to be wise when you say them and know when to hold your tongue and when not to, right? And not to be reactionary. That seems like that would have been a good, if we're going topical, that would have been a good topical sermon to preach on. Um it's just, I don't know if it's the sermon itself or, I mean, at this point, we've made 18 edits to this sermon. There's been 18 cuts so far that I've caught. And so maybe it's just the cuts that are making it sound disjointed. Um, or maybe it's just the sermon build and it's just bad. It's just a bad sermon build. Uh, we have about, let me see, 12 minutes left. Let's see what we got left in this. Look what the text here says. Those who control their what? Their tongue will have a what? Right? Look at this. So it says, look at this. So, so when you control your mouth and learn how to be silent, what happens to your life? It extends your life. But look what the text says. Opening your mouth can do what? Ruin everything and who am i talking to today you lucky they didn't cut you off but they're giving you another chance and you already messing it up 
No, people don't have to give people second chances, especially when you mess up really bad. I don't know, I'm a bit different. If I mess up really bad and they forgave me, I keep my butt clean. I make sure I walk this thing and I make sure I don't ever mess up again. I don't understand for the life of me, this generation, mess up, get forgiven and keep messing up. What does the New Testament say concerning controlling your mouth and being silent? Go to the next slide, watch this. The Bible says that it is not always a time to speak. Sometimes God says it's a time to do what? A time to be what? To be quiet. Sometimes, which means, watch this. I love this verse, right? Because it's actually saying there's going to be a time where I am going to sanction you to defend yourself and clear things up. See, some, so, see, the problem is we think, we look at this verse based on our Caribbean minority filter of how we were raised. How were we raised? Shut up and don't say anything, never bring it up again, right? So we become Christian and we view God like that. But I'm here to tell you the Bible says, God is not a man that he should lie. It's basically saying, God is not like your parents. God is not like your parents. See? God says, there's a time to be silent. Say with me, there's a time to be silent. Okay, he said New Testament and then, but again, there was a cut right after that. And now we're in Ecclesiastes. And so it's the, it's the verse that you, you know. The, the verse before that, by the way, was Proverbs 13, 3. If you are watching this video, you're seeing me look down like this a lot. The reason being, I am trying to keep up with the verses he's using. So if I do find one like the Matthew 5 text, we can actually look at it. Um, so far, again, he's in Proverbs. It's great. The Ecclesiastes is Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 7 and 8 are the ones he specifically zeroes out. And it says, a time to tear... Uh, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a, a time for war and a time for peace. Now, the only contention I have with it, he says there's a time that you will speak up and defend yourself. That's not necessarily what the text is saying. In, in, in chapter three, there's, it's a time for everything is what it says. There is everything, there is a season and a time everything uh, for everything under heaven and then a time to be born a time to die a time to plant a time to pluck the whole reason silence and speak are juxtaposed is because everything in here is juxtaposed it's very similar to the sermon on the mount in that regard but not not to the extreme that we see in ecclesiastes the point is it's not a time to be quiet and not defend yourself versus a time to defend yourself it's just saying in general there are seasons that you don't need to talk and then there are other seasons where you do need to talk but again he's reading it through the filter of defending himself because that's what the whole thing's been on so far now i'm hoping I mean, we're on track that he will get to James 3, verses 6 and 8 eventually. I'm hoping he does, because that's really where we should have started, probably. But let's see where we're going here. Next point is this, what the New Testament says for us to do. Go to the next slide. Is this good? Yes. James says, be slow to speak. Slow to speak. Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You must all be what? Quick to listen, slow to do what? Slow to speak, and the same, same slowness that helped you not speak so fast, use it in what? 
in your anger. Which means be slow to anger. I could do an altar call right there with that one. How many of you messed up that one? I messed up that one. How many of you can be honest? I messed up being angry. I be messing up. See? Now, watch this. The text, and I, and I, why? Because the text is actually saying your human anger never glorifies God no matter how many scriptures you put on it. Using Bible. Beating them over the head with it, right? So look at this. So your human anger, it's funny because I've seen people express anger and say the Holy Spirit told me. You ever see people say the Holy Spirit told me to, and you're like, wow, like you really angry when the Holy Spirit really told you to be like that? See? And the Bible says, be, be what? Quick to listen, right? You know what we are? Quick to not listen. And fast to speak and accelerate it to get angry. You don't believe so, ladies? I'll be seeing y'all because I'll be, I'll be watching y'all in the supermarket. Let, me, let somebody get on that line in front of you. I'll kid you not. <laughs> Loud noises of the person in front of you now. Like, and they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> okay, so hold on. Let's, um, let's go over here. It looks like I've already marked this up for something else. Um, let me look it down here. So um, these, are, these are apparently previous notes from, I think this was a live stream that I did. Uh, anyway, so his point is that, um, to, to his point, let's actually, hold on, let's erase this real quick so we can start over. So he is in James. Oh, it's not going to let me start over. That's interesting. Okay. Glitch in the system. I guess we're just going to roll with it. So he says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, on that point, he said that uh, anger is justified no matter how many verses you put on it. Now, I want to be careful because that is him actually reading on top of the text, right? So we have, especially prophets in the Old Testament, Jesus when he speaks to Satan, we have references, uh, there might be more, these are just off the top of my head. We have more... Uh, or we have people within the scriptures being angry and referencing scripture as the reason they're angry because so somebody is sinning or somebody is misusing scripture. Um, and so we have the prophets, for example, calling up things that God has said to say, you're not doing this and you should be doing this. And they're angry. They're doing this. And, and sometimes they're being very, um, what we would call mean about it. If they're being very strongly, they're using strong words uh, to to convey God's displeasure with his people. We have Jesus do this with Satan. Satan throws Bible at him, but he, it's out of context. It's not being used correctly. And Jesus um, points this out and back and uses scripture in the right way. And so there are times in which if you see somebody doing something that isn't in accord with scripture and they call themselves a believer, that one should be angry and tell them what the scripture says. So not that that's what he's saying, but there is a time that you can bring scripture as a defense of why you're angry somebody's doing something. So to be clear, that's not, it doesn't say no matter how many Bible verses you throw on it. Now that does sound good when you first hear it, but when you slow down and think about it, that's not what it says. Um, and so 
And even he follows it up in verse 21 there with, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive the meekness of the implanted word, right? Uh, which is to save your souls, right? So the implanted word is to save your souls and you are to put on meekness and not wickedness and filth- filthiness, which again, doesn't have anything to do with power. It's, it's the opposite. Meekness is the opposite of filthiness and wickedness. I only bring that up because we've already talked about meekness and I think we've already kind of talked about why that was an incorrect use of it when he talked about it before. So there's that. Okay. So I am glad he got to James, but that's, um, again, I'm a little concerned about how, how we use that. I think I'm stepping on too many toes. Last verse and we're done. Last verse. Am I preaching good? I don't know why I have never once in my life asked the congregation if I was preaching good. I don't care if you think I'm preaching good. I've done enough study and prayer uh, beforehand, ask enough people to double check what I'm saying in my sermon to, to, to be confident in it. That may be a denominational thing, but I've never once asked, am I preaching good? Everybody say, ouch! Ouch! Go to the next slide, last slide. Play something softly. This last verse is what I want to release over the house. It's for myself, but I'm releasing it. I want you guys to walk with me in this season. Say with me, Apostle, we walking with you. See? Especially in the holiday season. Especially if you're a person of influence. Especially if you're a person uh, that has a ministry. Especially if you have people that follow you. Especially if, you know, if you are a person of influence in the workplace. Okay, that part is the most relatable part. Everything before that was like, how many, how many quote-unquote influencers do you have in your church? And maybe he's got a lot. He's in New York. I have none. <laughs> I have none. We're living in an evil day. Unfortunately, you can only control your environment. You cannot control every environment. You can only control your cubicle, not the office. Sometimes commanding your morning don't work because they're demonized. Your boss got a demon, a legion, and you walk in there quoting scripture. Amen, do that, we're gonna do that. That's the right thing to do, but sometimes that legion be wanting to fight you in the spirit. And sometimes you can only command the morning in your work environment. In this cubicle, I decree peace. I speak peace over this monitor. I speak peace on this chair. As a matter of fact, devil, I anoint in front. I wish the devil would cross this line right behind this cubicle. I don't care what you do there, but in here, I'm a beast still. this and if I gotta turn you off do like this everybody now I'm not saying be nasty with people but sometimes walk away sometimes turn it off sometimes don't read the comments just walk off you know what? I'm not gonna even read it All right see watch this 
this last verse, I'm going to leave you with you. Watch this. Sometimes your silence is so that you can get a higher influence involved, which is God our Father. Look at this verse about Jesus. How many of you want to be like Christ? Want to be like Christ? Want to be like Christ? See? Look at this. Look at this. When Jesus was insulted. Okay, for the, I'm sorry. For the of you guys who are watching like the video version, is this not distracting behind here? I mean, the, the guys play a piano. I don't know what's happening. The other dude's got a camera in his hand. It looks like they're playing dual pianos now. I, I don't, it's incredibly distracting. Like if you're actually trying to, if you're there and you're actually trying to concentrate on what's happening, it's chaotic. Look what the verse here says. He did not retaliate when he was what? Insulted. Nor threaten what okay I don't know who I'm talking to with this enough with saying how you used to not always be saved when you argue with people you miss what I just said stop saying that because you ain't killing nobody you love Jesus stop yeah I wasn't always saved you saved now the Holy Ghost got you you're gonna do nothing why do we say things like that? What we're doing is we're threatening revenge. He didn't threaten revenge when he what? Suffered. He left his case. In the hands of the true judge who always say with me he always he always judges fairly while you make one mistake they banish you to hell God says I covered it in my blood forgive you go and sin no more God says I overlook it through the work of the cross because that's the new thing now you mess up one and they got you they banish you to hell but baby you can't curse what God has blessed and if any man be in Christ he is a new creature the old things yeah yeah last year I was drinking but this year I'm drinking on the Holy Ghost yeah 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 last year I was out there yeah last year I was a lukewarm Christian last year yes I was a hypocrite Christian but baby you can't hold that over my head forever because you a hypocrite now I was a hypocrite back then, but you're still a hypocrite now. If I got anybody in this house that has been washed in the blood, sanctified, get, get on your feet, lift your hands, and shut 
it to God with a voice of triumph. I love how, I don't know if you caught it. You can rewind it if you want, but he goes back. He's got his hand. He's like, come on, louder, guys. <laughs> if you've been forgiven, if you've been washed, and God took your mistakes and put them in the sea of forgetfulness, I want you for the next 30 seconds, give God the loudest praise. I know I've told you to be silent this whole time. I know I've told you and given you verses and verses about how silence is good, but we're not gonna do that now. We're not, we're not, we're gonna be loud now. I know I've told you the whole time that there is goodness in silence, but not right now. Praise the Lord. Lift your hands and praise him and give him glory. Lift your hands and worship him because the blood of Jesus washes away all of your hang-ups, all of your hiccups, all of your mistakes. Come on, worship him, worship him. Okay, I have to interrupt. I don't know. There was a cut there, so I have no clue what was said in between that. But he has gone to the language, if you're not familiar with Andrew Bacani, me and my friend Rob on the Babylon Pastor podcast, we broke down an entire thing about uh, generational curses. In that video, he talks about the courtrooms of heaven. He is a huge proponent of the courtrooms of heaven. So what he was just saying there, tell them my case, uh, uh, tell them... I don't know, he's repeating something about a case, but the point is he's connecting that verbiage, that verbiage for his congregation. They are aware of the courtroom of heaven theology, um, which basically says that um, demons have been assigned to you generationally and, you, and uh, you can pray and take those to the courtroom of heaven in which uh, there will be a jurisdiction done. Uh, whether uh, or not it's justified for you to have a curse on you or to be demonized. And uh, if you are a believer, uh, in that case, the, uh, the demon has to, uh, he has no, what do they call it, ownership or right. He has no right to be there. And then the courtroom of heaven sets you free, right? As if that did not happen when you first got saved. There's a whole theology. It's very interesting, actually, behind, beyond, uh, between the Demon Slayer group, even though there's no official group, quote-unquote. Uh, Isaiah Saldivar, for example, doesn't hold to this theology at all. He would consider it a secondary issue, which is sort of weird. I don't think it's a secondary issue. I mean, he's literally talking about a doctrine that doesn't exist and saying that it's a, it is a for real thing, the courtroom of heaven, which isn't even Isaiah, by the way, says that the courtroom of heaven isn't anywhere in Scripture. He doesn't see it. But yet Pagani here is like the proponent of proponents on it. So anyway, that's what he's saying. We got like two minutes left. I'm pretty sure it's all going to be screaming, but let's finish it because we're going to give him as much time uh, to, to justify what he's done so far as possible. And find five people and tell them your case is in the courtroom. Get out of your seat. Find five people and say your case, your case, your case, your case, your case, your case. Come on, five.
Find five people and set your case. Five people. Five people. Five people. Do I got five people in the back? Do I got five people on this side? You guys aren't moving enough. Come on. Touch five people. Do I got five people here? And that's you. Lift your hands and worship Jesus. Father, in the name of Jesus, as we pray, we're praying right now, Lord, that this moment be a moment where you minister to your people. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you are lost. The reason why things ain't working out is because you're not born again. You're not a child of his. You go to church, but you're not saved. You must get saved. So I want to make sure that you're not coming up for relief when God wants to bring resolve. Okay, so they must have, so he does deliverance ministry at his church with me. They pray over for the freedom from demon, demonized or demon possession. It's, I'm sure he has some sort of language that he uses like the rest of the demon slayers. So this seems to be, there's people at the front, uh, at least two that we can see. And I'm sure this is the end of the service in which people are given the chance to come get delivered. Now he's made it apparently clear. Again, there's been three cuts in the last minute. Um, so we're not quite sure where we're at. But I'm putting the pieces together with as much knowledge as I have on deliverance ministries and assuming what's happening is the service is ending. He's allowed people to come up for deliverance. Uh, there's people at the front to pray deliverance over people, but he is telling them if they don't know the Savior, they're lost. And the reason deliverance isn't working is because they're lost uh, and they need to be saved because if they're not saved, deliverance won't work, essentially. Uh, also in this theology, in case you don't know, um, they don't think that, uh, deliverance or being delivered from being demon, you can't be delivered from being demonized unless you're a believer because it's the quote unquote children's bread. It's also a verse that's misused, um, which sort of is odd because all of the demons being, um, uh, all the demon possessions that we see Jesus deal with are all not believers. A couple of them are, are even pagans. They're Greeks. They're not even Jews. Um, so I don't know how all that lines up. Yeah, we'll be the emergency room, but baby, we want to make sure that you walk out of here with Jesus. So if you're not saved or you're backsliding, reconcile and repent right now. Amen. Repent and believe that Jesus died on that cross, resurrected from the dead. And if you're backsliding, you already know what you need to do. Come back home in Jesus' mighty name. It's almost like it's like a threat. Like you can't get undemonized. Like the problems you have in your life will not go away unless you're saved. And if you want saved, you got to repent and believe today. Do you want to get saved? Do you want to be not demonized? Well, get saved. Like, it's, it's almost like it's like this whole different level of pressure. Like, believe it. Because if you don't believe it, we can't, we can't get the, the perceived demon in your life out of your life. Come back home. No more church hurt as an excuse of, I just haven't been to church. You're in church now. God says, what are you going to do with me now? What are you going to do with me now? Oh, but they hurt me. You know what Jesus says? They hurt me too. As a matter of fact, they hurt me because of you, because of your sin. See? See? Repent of your sin and ask Christ to be Savior right now. Do it very quickly. Backslider, come back. Just make a reconciliation prayer. Lord, forgive me. I, I come back home and I repent. I come back home like the prodigal son. Do it right now. See, it's very interesting because this is very much like, do it, do it right now. Like, belief and faith according to Ephesians, are gifts, right? It is, faith is a gift uh, given. 
And so there's no like intellectual ascent here. Like obviously intellect can get you so far, but the gift of faith is from God. And so uh, it's this belief that Jesus is the Messiah, that he died and he rose from the grave. And um, it's on that premise that we're saved, that we're reconciled to the Father through Jesus. And so it's one of those things that you have to understand why you even need reconciliation in the first place. Why is this the way to be reconciled? And it's not like you have to have all the ducks in the road to be saved, right? There's a reality that like everyone comes at a different like sort of place to, to Christ. But you do have to understand that, that Jesus is the only way. And the reason you even need reconciliation is because you are not reconciled to the Father. Well, why are you not reconciled to the Father? Because of your sin, right? Your sin has driven a wedge between you and the Father. And the only way for that wedge to be done is Jesus died, took the punishment for that sin on the cross, and rose from the grave in defeat of sin and death. And now, because of Jesus, you can be reconciled to the Father. But the reality is you have to recognize that you are a sinner, that you you are rebelling against God, that you even need reconciliation in the first place. And you don't come to God to get something else, right? You're coming to God because you understand that you have wronged him and that he, as the creator of all things in the universe, deserves honor and praise and glory. And you've spit in his face. And Jesus gives you an opportunity to be reconciled to him. So you're not coming to him for anything but forgiveness. Um, you're not coming to him so he'll deliver you from whatever. You're coming to him knowing that he's a good father and you need to be reconciled to him. And you have not been reconciled to him yet because you are a sinner. And so it's like, I, there's not like a full presentation here of the gospel. It's just like, it's basically if you want delivered, be saved, and then you can get delivered. It's a tit for tat sort of situation. Jesus name, right now in Jesus name. For those of you that have been out of church up here in the front, and you live in this area, I'm not telling you to join this house, but I am saying to come to this house until the Lord speaks to you about what church you're gonna go to. Don't watch at home. Come and gather with the saints. And stay here until the Lord says, stay or he finds you another church. No more staying home and watching online. Unless you really have to. So Father, in the name of Jesus, as they pray those prayers, as our ministers begin to pray for your people, I ask, Lord, that you would begin to move in a supernatural way. Touch, touch them supernaturally, Lord Father. Work on their cases, Lord Jesus. Bring great resolve in Jesus' mighty name. And the church say, amen, amen. <laughs> okay, so there's that. That's It just restarted the sermon. So, okay, well, let's go over the three things that we look at every single sermon. The first one is, did he read the text? Now, I don't want you to be mistaken by pastors reading a lot of verses as if they read the text. <laughs> because... That doesn't, that's not what that means. The reading the text is, did they read the text? Not just the verse, but the text in context, in what it says. So we read uh, Revelation 8. We read 1 Kings 19. We read parts of Proverbs 21, parts of Proverbs 16, parts of Proverbs 17, parts of Second Chronicles, parts of Mark, parts of Matthew, and parts of Ecclesiastes and parts of James, but we didn't actually look at any of them, like in their context. Basically, the reason we were there, because the passage said something about silence. That's why we were there. 
And because we pulled all of those out of their original context, we clearly didn't exegete the text using context and culture to bring out the application for the believer. Really, not really. The Proverbs, as I said, were the closest we got to that. And the last thing is, did we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? Um, not really. There are times in previous sermon reviews in which... Um, that question is no, but it's like no in the right way. What I mean by that is that if the pastor is assuming that the, or, or knows, because obviously as the pastor of your congregation, you know them well, that knows that 99% of, of these people are, are saved. You've heard their confession. You, you see their life. You're walking with them. Um, it's not a time to necessarily give a salvation call. Like it's not a time to be like re-explain the gospel again. Now you can, you can obviously do that. Um, there's some pastors I know that deliberately work that into the end of every sermon and that's good. And that's, it's preferable, honestly. Um, but they do it as if you aren't saved and you need to hear the gospel and then they give a clear gospel presentation. Um, there are some like the last sermon review we did in which, um, a clear gospel presentation wasn't given. Um, I actually had to interject and edit on that one to say that, like I said, it was, but it really wasn't. But it's not that it was detrimental because it was actually encouraging the believers to keep pers pursuing Christ. Um, and so it was really directed at believers, not unbelievers, though obviously we could have interjected a, a call of salvation, but we, they didn't in the last one. And here in this one, he seems to interject a call of salvation, not for the sake of reconciliation to the Father, but because if you're going to get delivered, you have to be saved. And so if you want the deliverance to like happen right, you need to be saved and you know what you got to do to be saved is believe in Jesus that he died and rose from the dead. And so it was sort of like your, your arm is being twisted to get saved because if you, if you feel like you have a demon um, that's like making you chronically ill, for example, and you're told, well, we can't, you know, get the demon out unless you're saved, you're going to say whatever you have to say to get quote unquote saved so that you can get this chronic illness demon out of you. So you're doing it with like your arm twisted behind your back because you want, you want something in return for something. So no, the gospel wasn't presented. Now it's hard to tell because there are literally 26 edits in this sermon in which they clearly cut the sermon. And so it's hard to tell what's cut out, what's not cut out. I'm assuming it is silences or like long pauses that they've cut out to make the video shorter. I that feels kind of weird to do that, but whatever. It's a 32 minute, it's a 32 minute long video. So maybe there were really long pauses that made it incredibly unwatchable. The point is, even with those cuts in, the sermon wasn't coherent. Some of the verses were taken completely out of context. And altogether, it wasn't super helpful. Like if I were to write this sermon, I would, I'll just say this. If I was to write this sermon, I would just go with James uh, chapter three, verses six through eight. I'll just just lay this out real quick because I think this would have been a much smoother sermon and it would have accomplished what he was trying to accomplish anyway, right? So this is the taming the tongue passage. If we go right here, uh, verses six and eight, and the tongue is a, well, we would actually start at the very top. We would have read chapter three, verses one through, through 12 probably, and then went through talking about how important it is to control uh, the tongue, how important it is to watch what you say, probably would have interjected some of the Proverbs that he mentioned. Proverbs uh, 21, 20, verse 23, for example, Proverbs um, 16, Proverbs 17, verse 28, like those interjected those along the way to connect them and do some cross references. And the entire point of the past or part of the sermon would have been, 
You're responsible for what you say, control what you say, be wise with your words because how you speak matters. And probably what it interject is something along the lines of where Jesus tells uh, the religious leaders that you will give an account for everything you say. And then that would have been the message. Um, and hopefully that would have been encouraging, but also convicting and correcting. And that's the point, according to Paul, when he writes to Timothy of the scripture is to rebuke and correct and build up. And so I don't feel like any of that was done here. And I don't think I'm saying that because of my, um, my feelings toward Pagani, because this really wasn't a deliverance ministry message at all. This had nothing to do with demons really until the end. It was just a clobbered together message about watching what you say and being silent. But there was this real overtone of he felt attacked by people. And most of the sermon until about halfway through, it felt like he was just defending himself is what it felt like. So let me know what you think. I literally spent almost an hour on commentary on this sermon. Hopefully you found that helpful. If you did like the video, share the video, let me know below and I'll talk to you next week.